the first thing that I would like to do, um, in the previous class I discussed that there are different views as to whether there should be principles or what the principles even are. I want to first start off with mentioning there is an alternative view. Um, and the reason I mention this alternative view, A, it's good to know about the alternative view, and B, it also helps us appreciate the Ramam's 13 principles. The alternative view is that there are only three principles of Judaism, fundamental principles. How many? Three. three. Okay. This view is the view of a rabbi named Rabbi Yosef Alba, or Albo. Um, he wrote an entire work criticizing the Rambam. And he argues that there are three fundamental principles. They are the existence of God. No, if you do not believe in the existence of God, whatever you are practicing can't be Judaism. The revelation, meaning the communication of God to the people, that God communicates his will to people, because if God doesn't tell you what he wants, obviously that's not Judaism. You have to believe that what you are practicing is God's revealed will. And last but not least, reward and punishment. That if you comply with God's will, you'll be rewarded. And if you, God forbid, the opposite, you'll be punished. Because believing that there's no consequences for complying or disobeying God's will, that would also mean it's not Judaism. Now, an obvious objection to this is this would describe many monotheistic religions, right? Um, so while it is a good definition of a monotheistic religion, it doesn't really capture the unique flavor of Judaism. You could always say, well, I believe that the God's revealed will is found in the Torah and our tradition. Okay, fine. But it, the, in the fundamental principles themselves, there doesn't seem to be anything that is uniquely Jewish. Okay. The Rambam's principles, on the other hand, do really capture very much the uniquely Jewish character of the religion. These three are Rambams? No, these three are Yosef Albos, who critique the Rambam. Okay. Yes. Now, so the one reason I bring this up is, like I said, it's good to know there's this alternative viewpoint. And that we're not, you know, as a Jewish community, we're not quick to throw someone out if they can at least subscribe to these three in the practice of Judaism, even though the main view is the Rambam. The second thing is it's good um, to appreciate that the Rambam is taking a step further, going beyond just like a basic kind of, you know, one size fits all monotheistic religion and actually saying, no, no, there's something very unique about the Jewish religion and that should be captured in its fundamental principles. Um, and the third reason is that we can use these three principles as an organizing system. The Ram has 13 principles. A list of 13 is hard to remember. Can you remember a list of three? Mm-hmm. Okay. Can you remember a list of five? Mm-hmm. So if you have a list of three and then each thing has subcategories, right? Mm-hmm. So you have under the existence of God are going to fit five of the Rambam's principles. Mm-hmm. Under the broad idea of God revealing his will will lie four of the Rambam's principles. And under very loosely the idea of reward and punishment, we can find another four of the Rambam's principles. So if you remember three and then you remember a list of five, four, and four, it's a little bit easier. Okay. So what I want to do before we get started is just list the five principles that fall into the general category of the existence of God. Okay. These are not, sorry, these are not. These are the Rambam's. The Rambam has 13, but five of them have to do with the existence of God. So that kind of fits under that one in fact, some of the defenders of the Rambam make the point that the Rambam um, is just being more explicit because he wants the details to be known more clearly. That's why he breaks it down. Okay. The five principles relating to the existence of God are, and I am briefly summarizing, just giving a list, because the text is actually quite long. 
Um, the, the text starts on page one, on the page thirty-five, and um, the um, the sixth principle starts um, on the end of page thirty-six. So, you know, in, in the original print here, it's like almost two and a half pages. But I'm just give you the list quickly. First. God exists. Right, so one has to believe that God exists. Number two, God is one. They have to not only believe that God exists, they have to believe that God is one. Number three, God has no body. Okay. Number four, God is beyond time. And number five, only God is deserving of worship. So one, the existence of God. Two, that he is one. Three, that he has no body. Four, that he is beyond time. And five, that only God is worthy of worship. Only God is deserving of worship. Good? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, I would like someone to volunteer. Um, before you volunteer, just keep in mind two things. A, you are making yourself a public figure for ridicule. Um, and B, I'm the one that may in fact do the ridiculing. So I'm not forcing anybody to volunteer, but if you feel brave enough, please volunteer. I would like someone to please give a working definition of God. And the reason why we have to do this, you have to do this because you cannot believe that God exists unless you have a working definition of God, right? If after all, when I say the word God, I mean, um, you know, my child's pacifier, and I just call that God, I'm clearly not in compliance with this, with this fundamental principle of Judaism, right? It's not that you believe that there is an entity that goes by the word God. It's, there's a certain, certain working definition of what God is that you believe, yeah, there really is such a being like that. So if you don't have a working definition of God, you can't fulfill this principle, right? So I would like someone to volunteer. Nobody's brave enough? Go for it. Um, God is the creator of all things, but not just an initial creation, it's a continual creation. Okay. And it's not some, that is not something we can never grasp. Okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to, you said three things. Okay, we're going to talk about the first thing that you said. <laughs> God is the creator. Okay. Now, the Rambam makes a very interesting argument. The Rambam Maimonides, when we're reading, right, makes a very interesting argument, not here in a different work of his. Um, that is a general matter of education. One should not use ideas that are more difficult to understand or establish as ways to coming to know things which are more fundamental and easier to establish, right? That makes sense? Should use something harder. It's for something easier. easier. You should the other way around, right? So I'm going to ask you, what is creation? Because you, 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 your definition of God incorporated this concept called creation. So I will ask you, what is creation? Right, because for us, we have an idea of creation, and it's us taking something, creating something from something. Right. God's definition of creation is something from nothing. And do you have any idea what you mean by that? Okay, so, so this is the problem. So the Rambam actually asserts that the working definition for God is easier to wrap your mind around than the working definition for creation. So... God, it may be factually correct that God is the creator, but you wouldn't really satisfy the definition of God that way. One reason is because it's very hard to figure out what it means to be the creator. It's, it's actually easier to figure out what we mean by God. 
And then the second thing, what if God hadn't created? Would he still be the creator? Would he still be the creator if he had never created? No. Well, yeah, because that, that power only lies with him. But he's... Creator implies that he created. Now, you could say we could call him the creator in potential, yeah. which has its whole set of list of other problems that we'll get to in principle number three. Okay? <laughs> but the more basic issue is that you're using the idea of creation to define God, where at least in theory, whatever it is to be God... Um, is somewhat independent of whether or not he chooses to create. Right, but he's the only one that can. That's fine. Which, that, that's why I said there's two issues. Number one, using the idea of creation to define God is problematic because creation is actually a harder idea to wrap your mind around mm-hmm. than just going directly to God. The other thing is that you're using something which is to some degree optional or potential when if you have something that's more substantive or direct, that would be, seem to be better. Okay. So let's see what the Rambam says about the definition of God. He gives us a whole paragraph. Um, where is this? Where is this text? Yeah. It is in the Rambam's introduction to Chelek. Oh, the but like in general. Like, Which is part of his commentary on the Mishnah. Like it's just like he wrote like a book? Yeah, just a book. It's a book. It's part of a bigger book. A much bigger book. Okay. The first fundamental principle... So if you look for the paragraph that says the first fundamental principle, it has a little footnote 68, is the existence of the creator. And you're thinking, wait a minute, Rabbi Kaufman. So I would like to point out that the Rambam wrote this work in Judeo-Arabic. I mentioned this before, right? And the translator translated it from, this translator translated from Judeo-Arabic. No, they translated it from a Hebrew translation. So this is a translation of a translation. And the purpose of this translation was to make it as readable as possible and much of the Rambam's nuance was sacrificed. So I will nitpick based on the other things that the Rambam himself wrote on the topic where he clarified exactly what he meant. Okay. I.e., the existence of a being who's perfect in all manners of perfection. Okay, let's stop there. So what do we mean? We mean you have to believe that there is a being who is perfect in all manners of perfection. Okay. What does it mean to be perfect? No flaws. Okay, now I'm going to be annoying because it's a philosophy class. What is a flaw? <laughs> Something that we as human beings on this earth have deemed okay. incorrect today, in today's age. Okay, so, so this is where we're going to run into a major problem. Okay, so a little bit of the history of Western thought. Okay. There used to be an idea that there's something called objective reality, okay? Um, and objective reality contained many things. It contained moral truths. It contained um, a hierarchy of being. It contained physical reality. So moral truths such as it is wrong to murder. Um, hierarchy of being. Human beings are inherently a more worthy mo- kind of being than say a rock. In other words, even though a rock couldn't really have an opinion about it, but it is, in some objective sense, better to be a person than to be a rock because you engage in being in a higher level. Okay? Um, the world works in a physical way that, is, that has a kind of defined nature to it. Okay? Now, over time, there is another idea that has arisen, which is that much of what we 
describe as objective reality is the product of our minds, either our individual minds or the kind of collective negotiation of society. So therefore, there are philosophers who would say, when we say murder is wrong as if it's an objective statement, what we really mean is I don't like murder. We're just using different language to cover over the fact that it's a personal opinion. Now, this is a very complicated area of philosophy. Why am I bringing it up? You cannot have a religion if you believe that there is no objective reality, A. Uh, and the reason for this is that the very notion of religion is that makes claims upon you, as we spoke about in the previous class, right? It makes, you have duties, you have obligations that don't stem from you and really don't stem from society, right? So that requires there to be some kind of objective reality. And it also requires that objective reality not be grounded purely in the physical. So you have to have some sense that there is some objective truth to the matter of things are wrong or things are right, things are better and things are worse, which is not the product of personal or collective opinion. Otherwise, the whole notion of religion just collapses on itself. Now, that's not an argument that that's correct. That's just an argument saying, if we're going to study religion, what are we taking for granted? That these, there, there's our objective statements. So if I ask you again, what's a flaw? And then you ground the notion of flaw in what a person prefers or what society prefers or what society agreed upon, well, now you're using a concept of flaw which wouldn't work in a religious discussion. Okay, so that's not an argument for one side of the issue. You're saying, if we want to discuss religion, we have to adopt relig the religious kind of metaphysics. Okay, so now, give me an objective definition of a flaw. Something God says is not? No, we're never, we're never going to use something God says because that, that covers over... It's just using just words. Yeah, it's just, yeah, yeah. You're just, yeah that, that's not saying anything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, once we've established what we mean by God and what we yeah. mean by God says, then maybe it's saying something, right. but we have to so unpack that. Yeah. So what's a flaw? Well, that's an interesting idea. The problem is that that presupposes that everything is designed. That's going to be problematic when we talk about God. So no. In other words, I, I, in other words my, my objection to that is that it's too narrow of a concept for us to then start talking about when it comes to God. A flaw is something that can be improved upon. In other words, the, the, a flaw is that something that could be better than it is. So if you have a notion of hierarchy of better and worse, something that there is the possibility of it being better has in some sense a flaw. Now we might choose to limit our notion of what counts as better because not all flaws are relevant, right? For instance, I, I cannot fly, right? In some sense, maybe it would be better if I could fly, right? But since human society doesn't really expect people to fly you know, on their own, we kind of ignore that and don't think of myself as flawed because I don't have wings to fly, right? But, right? Um, and we might go even, we might even start using like social roles. Like if you believe in a, in a society that has a strong sense of class, you might say the fact that certain people aren't able to vote or certain people aren't entitled to do certain things is not really a flaw because like they're already on a lower level to begin with. But if we zoom out of all that and say, okay, a flaw means something that could be improved upon. There is a hierarchy of being. Something could be better than it is. If it could be better than it is, it is imperfect. So then what would that mean? What do we mean by God? A being that cannot be improved upon. In any manner, any, any legitimate notion of objective betterness, there is nothing that is conceptually could be better than God. 
Okay, that's what we mean. We mean that God is perfect in all manners of perfection. Okay. So God, per- perfect means that it's not doesn't have flaws. Flaws are things you can approve upon. So a perfect being is something a being that cannot be better than it is. That it lack doesn't have the ability to be better. There's no concept of it being better than it is. And if it's perfect in all manners of perfection, then that would mean there's no way of conceiving a better than what it is. So what's better than God? Nothing. By definition, mm-hmm. we are defining God as that which there can nothing be better than. Mm-hmm. Now, if you believe in one God, by the way, what would that mean? That would mean that many things that we think are trade-offs are not ultimately trade-offs. For instance, um, we would think sometimes that sometimes it's better to be rational about things, right? Sometimes it's better to be passionate about things, right? But often being passionate and being rational are in tension with each other, right? So if you're better at rationality, it probably comes at the expense of your passions. And if you're more passionate, it probably comes at the expense of your rationality, just as an example, right? Well, those kinds of trade-offs could not be true of a being who is perfect in all manners of perfection, right? Because there, you can't say, oh, you can't, God cannot be better in this respect, but in this other respect, he's somehow deficient, right? There's no... So th- that already means that we're, we're thinking categorically very different than, than everything we're familiar with. Because everything we're familiar with, even when we think of it being improved upon, every improvement in one area usually comes at the cost of some deficiency in some other area. So God is a very different kind of being than what we're familiar with. Okay, let's keep going. He is the cause of the existence of all other beings. Stop there. What does that mean, he's the cause of the existence of all other beings? Good. What is a cause? A cause is exactly as you put it. A cause is easiest understood with negation. Without the cause, the thing that it's the cause of would not be. How many kinds of causes are there? There are many kinds of causes. Now, there's the obvious cause, which is the thing that brings something into being. Without my parents, I would not exist, right? That's kind of obvious. But what other things are causes of me? And don't say God. What? The environment, right? That also shaped me. But we can kind of think of that as playing the same kind of causal role as my parents, right? My my parents brought me into being, but the specific shape and contours of my being are not just by my parents, but also through all the environmental influences. Okay, what other kinds of causes are there? But those are just the way I've experienced my environment, right? So we're just saying the same thing in different words. Okay. If a person would have no purpose to their life, would they be what we think a person is? When we think of what it is to be a person, we think of someone that is, has purpose, has some kind of meaning, that their life is for something. I don't necessarily, by the way, mean in some sort of, um, like, you know, they believe in God. What I mean to say is that the notion that their survival is justified by something beyond the mere survival. I think it would be really hard for someone to not have that because even the pizza guy who comes to your door every week likes you you. and likes your, if that's the only person you see. You know, you, you have, everyone must have some... Purpose. Yeah, people... Right. So, yeah. so in other words, a condition of our existence is that we 
have something that provides us with some semblance of purpose. Now that's causing in a different sense, okay? Um, And so the way to think about cause is what would you remove that would make it that this thing could not come into being, wouldn't be the way it is, could not continue to be the way it is, okay? The Ram actually, based on, on other philosophical traditions, categorizes the, the four basic kinds of causes primarily. Um, it doesn't really you know, matter, I'll mention them briefly. There's what brings something into being, there's what it's made of, there's what characteristics it has to have to maintain its identity, and then there is what, to what end does it pursue. So, like for instance, what is the, what is the cause of a business? Well, one way of thinking of the cause of a business is that a business is there to make money, right? If, if money were to lose value, what would happen to every business overnight? Would, would it really be a business anymore? If all of a sudden like, money became something that nobody cared about, like, like, how would you even make sense of what a corporation is, of what a business is, right? right? Because it seeks to make money, money's existence in reality serves to give identity, give purpose. Okay? That's different than the founder of the business, right? Which is different than maybe the, the employees, which you, you know. And the, so there's different, there's different ways of thinking about cause. It doesn't say here create, does it? And the Ram makes a very big point because what we're simply saying here is that God is the cause of existence. In any way that existence is caused, if you run that chain all the way back, what is going to be the ultimate cause? God. So if you were to ask the question of what caused this to come into being, say, well, I don't know. I, my parents were caused me to come into being. What caused my parents? My grandparents, right? If you run all the way back, what are you supposed to end up with? Adam. And then what caused Adam to come into being? God. If you were to say... What, what gives things their identity and purpose? Ultimately, it's going to be God. Now, does this mean God is the direct cause? No, sometimes he's the indirect cause. Like, God did not directly bring me into being. He brought Adam into being and Eve into being, and then from them, ultimately me, right? But the idea is that any way of understanding the cause of something, which is another way of saying any way of trying to make sense of things, understand things, put things in context, ultimately lands back on this perfect being which is an independent idea of whether he actually created the world, whether he poofed things into existence out of nothing. That's like a harder thing to wrap your mind around. To put this in other terms, what is the ultimate context of everything? God. Is that why you have to have an objective reality to believe in God? I didn't understand that. Right, because ultimately, ultimately because religion is about the worship of a God and God is about bringing, if this is what we mean by God, then it doesn't make sense to like not have objective reality. It's like he's doing it so that she should see what I see and I, you right. should all see, right. even if we don't see it the same, like a red versus a red, right. but it should right. still so, be right. so, essentially red. So God, the, the word is like God, like if you think about a build, uh, think about like the, 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 a city, every building in the city is different, but they're all resting on the same ground. God is serving the, as the ground of all rea- of reality. Without God, everything falls away. So would someone who has hallucinations not be considered... Well, God is causing their hallucinations. Okay, so fine. Maybe the content of their hallucinations is false, but the hallucinations are quite real. Okay. Yes? This is a little off topic, but if the ultimate... If everything is God, then how is there free will? Okay. How does that work? So, two things. One, I didn't say everything is God. I just said everything is caused by God. It's very important. The idea that everything is God is a view of Hasidus, and it is shall we say, controversial within Jewish theology. So if you expose to Chabad, you hear it a lot. 
but if you were exposed to like non-Hasidic views of things, you probably wouldn't hear that very often at all. Um, in fact, it's a, it, 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 it requires some explanation because a key idea in Judaism is the distinction between God and everything else. So, but at setting that aside, the simple answer free will um, is that free will is, is um, a ability to do something, is not the absence of interference. So something has to cause you to have the capacity to be self-governing and self-regulating. So God causing you to have free will is not the same thing as God controlling you. Um, I could elaborate more, but I don't want to do that right now. God is causing you, like giving you this free will, then it's not really free will. Sure it is, because free will is a capacity. Free will, in other words, free will is the power to regulate your own experiences and behaviors. It is not... So, so you have something that empowers you to be able to do that, and that thing is caused by God. We're not saying that God is directly causing your behavior. He is indirectly causing your behavior because your behavior is due to your self-regulation and your capacity to self-regulate is, is caused by God. By the way, that, even that is not directly. That's caused by God through a very convoluted process of you being, coming from your parents, etc. So this is very important. That cause is a very broad idea. It simply means if you remove this, you can't have that. But the exact dynamics of the causality can vary. There are kinds of causality where you're taking like direct control of something. So if God, we were to say that God is the direct cause of your actions, then yes, you couldn't have free will. But when we say God is the cause of your actions in as much as your actions result from your, your free will, your ability to self-regulate, which depends on certain psychological capacities that depend on your biology, soul, and upbringing, which are themselves caused by God, then God is in some sense the cause of your actions, but not in any direct sense. Yeah. Okay, if one were to imagine that his, uh, and, he, and, and from him they derive their continued existence. So words, this, this fact that think God is the cause of existence is not a just, at the, just in order to bring things into existence, it's an ongoing dependency. So what would happen if God were to cease to be? So would everything else cease to be. If one would imagine existence would cease, all things would be nullified and would no longer continue to be. Conversely, right? So he is our cause, but we are not his cause. So the converse is not true. If all other existence ceased, he would continue to exist and would not be lacking, for he is not dependent on any being other than himself. Okay, this is very important. Is God the creator of the world? In fact, yeah, that's what it says in the Torah. First verse, Genesis. Chapter 1, verse 1, God created the world, right? Did he create the world because he was bored? No, could not be. Because if he created the world because he was bored, what is boredom? Not a, a it's a flaw, right? Boredom is a flaw. Boredom is a lacking of something that needs fulfillment. This, of course, creates a major question why God would do anything, right? And why do we have to pray then? We'll get, to that, we'll get to that later. But what, what follows from this is that we already have a very serious problem when we think about God. We can understand our motivations basically in one way, which is that we are lacking and we seek to compensate for our lacks. We lack nutrition, we seek out food. Our existence is intrinsically empty, we seek out purpose. We are lonely, we seek out companionship and society, right? We are lacking stimulation, we seek out novelty, right? Why did God create the world? That's right. 
You cannot understand God's motivations in principle because a motivation of a being who is, has no lacks is not anything like our motivation. Now, Jewish philosophers then try to figure out, okay, what are we supposed to do with that? Should we just be silent on the topic? Should we try to come up with some analogies and metaphors to help us try and, and relate to this? But, but this is, a, this is a, a serious consequence of understanding what it means that God exists. And by our definition of God... Kindness or something. Is what? Kindness. He's just did it for kindness. Why? Why does he... That's want? not a flaw. Well, okay. You, well, that's a position. There's some Jewish philosophers who say yes and some Jewish philosophers say no. There are Jewish philosophers who take the following view. Is that... Um, is that um, um, God recognizes the value in other things having existence, even though it no way enhances his existence, it is beneficial for them to exist for themselves. It's beneficial for being to be rather than not to be. And since God doesn't lack the capacity to bring them into being, that's why he does it. And that's one way of thinking of it as kindness. There are those who disagree um, would argue that God seeing the value in something other than himself does imply a kind of subtle form of lacking that requires some form of fulfillment and then you couldn't use that. But yeah, this becomes a major issue. So when you ask a question like, why does God do this or why did God want that? There's a certain subtle sense in which we're denying the thing we're talking about, the thing we're questioning isn't really God because we only understand motivation in terms of fulfillment of lack. And even that kindness thing, the more you think about it, it's like you feel the need to benefit others. And so there's a kind of like, right, and there's like Abraham, Abraham was sitting at his tent and was waiting for visitors to help. He wasn't hungry, he wasn't bored, he wasn't lonely, but he wanted to help people. And so there's a kind of externalized lack there. Okay. Everything in existence other than him even entities whose existence is on a plane of intellect, meaning non-physical entities. Examples, angels, the forms of the orbits, and certainly lower forms of existence depend on him for their being. This is the first fundamental principle, which is alluded to in the commandment, I am God, your Lord. So this is not just true about physical entities, but even non-physical beings, such as the souls, the angels, etc. All of these things entirely depend on God, and God does not depend on them. Now, is connection to God in this way of thinking about things, an optional thing? No. So I want to give you an, two statements and I want you to tell me which is closer to what we would mean when a person says, I believe in God. I believe in America. I believe in gravity. Which of those is closer to what we mean when we say, I believe in God, based on this text? Gravity, why? <laughs> gravity is a reality that governs your existence whether you like it or not. You can accept that that's true and live in accordance with it and you won't fall off buildings or the opposite. <laughs> but America's like, uh, it's a not real. America's like, yeah, it's like, it's a, it's a thing that we like, you know, what does it really mean? Who does it mean to? What does it mean to believe? You aspire. It's, it's very much a product of the human individual and social imagination. It's not the same thing. Okay. Yes. No. Well, we're going to get to that. Oh. We're going to get to that. I just simply mean in terms of something which is the product of human aspiration and cognition that we value, right? Versus, no, there is a reality to, to there's an objective reality. It's governed in a certain way, 
right? And so we're saying, yeah, there is a being who is perfect in all manners of perfection. He is the ultimate cause in every notion of causality of what, what exists. Um, our, the continued existence of everything depends on his continuing to be the cause. His being is in no way enhanced by those things existing, so the causality only works one way. There's no backwards feedback on fulfillment. Um, and this is true of every other kind of being other than him, including you know, non-physical beings. Okay, well, like, that's just the structure of reality. You can accept it, you can deny it, you can live in accordance with it, or you can be delusional about it, right? That's, so if a person really were to, let me put this in slightly different terms. If I'm walking down the street and someone tells me, you know, as I leave and I walk home, that it's, that it's the middle of the night, how am I going to feel about that? Am I going to feel defensive as I'm walking home at you know, four o'clock in the afternoon? When they tell me it's the middle of the night, I'm going to feel defensive. No. Why not? You know that's not true. This is reality. The reality is daytime, and the fact the person is claiming otherwise, I mean, something interesting going on with them. You know, maybe I feel compassion and try and figure out what's going on and help them. Maybe I won't. Maybe, you know, but like the defensiveness won't be there, right? If someone, you know, I know this may be getting me into hot water, but let's just say that you're one of the people who just takes it for granted that the earth is, in fact, a ball and not flat. Um, <laughs> And then someone says, no, 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 the earth is flat. Like most people are like, you know, I, I, like if I, if, if I have a lot of compassion for you, maybe I'll have the time to sit and talk and try and explain it to you, but otherwise I'm moving on. I don't feel very defensive. What about our political beliefs though? Is that how that works? Why not? Because there's a sense in which our political beliefs very much are wrapped up into our personal aspirations and our motivations, right? Okay. And very often we, we treat belief in God much more like that. And that kind of cuts against what we mean by the existence of God in this fundamental principle. Okay. Now, again, I want to point out, have I made an argument for the existence of God? No. no, we're just trying to define what we mean by God. Now, this is what I call a working definition. Working definition means it is specific enough that you can use it for the context. It is, the, is this a complete definition? In other words, does this tell me exactly what God is and what he is like? You couldn't. No, I, there's no way I could. That defines God that you couldn't make it. Right. So we have to be clear. There's working definitions which are specific enough that I can think coherently about the topic. And then there's like a true definition which captures precisely the essence of the thing. We don't have a true definition of God, but we do have working definition of God. Principle number one. Questions? Before yeah. Before you move on to the second, you mentioned two different things. You mentioned flaws and lacking. Yeah, I was, so, those were using those as synonyms, not as two sure, different but, things. Sure, like, if God created us, then he was lacking us. No, that's... that's the mystery of God creating. Now, there are different ways of... No, that, that's exact... Wait, do you see what I'm trying to... I, I, I... So, so the, there's, there's two different... There's two different approaches, broadly speaking. One approach is to... Is to say that our non-existing doesn't really count as a lack for God. And therefore, our coming into existence is not meeting a lack. It's not fulfilling a void. That's one approach. The other approach is that our existence is not really in any way substantively an improvement upon our absence. So either what you're saying is, there's there's two basic approaches in Jewish philosophy when they deal with this topic. One approach is to say, um, it wasn't really a lack, and so it's not really fulfillment. And they were saying, well, it wasn't really fulfillment. Either way, that creates deep existential questions about how we think of ourselves which may lead us to this notion of sub- subordinating ourselves to God as a higher order being becomes much more profound. But it is true that when we think about it very naively, we think, well, I mean, God exists and I didn't exist and then I showed up, so like, I must be somehow an improvement over, every, over what was before, right? Because otherwise God brought me here. Um, 
but that is implicitly in tension with this working definition of God. And so that's like a major topic in Jewish philosophy and mysticism, how you get out of that mess. But yeah, no one, no one just takes the vote. Oh yeah, God's being is somehow improved in some way or fulfilled in some way by our coming into existence. Sorry. If it's very, it's like, feel it's a big ego boost. Like I give God fulfillment. Like, come on, like I'm so important. Really, in prayer, that's what I feel. I what? talk about it later, but that's what I always feel like in prayer. Like, okay, God's prayerful. Yeah. Um, and to, to be fair, that idea exists in Judaism. Yeah. It's just in tension with our working definition of God. What you'll start to discover is that many things in Judaism are in tension with other things in Judaism. That's why it's interesting. If, um, remember what the Ram says at the end if you read all this and you think you understood it after even 10 times? Because we, we should feel like we're important because we are fulfilling God's will. So there is some sense in which there is truth to that idea. We have to... How it fits with this is a fair question. Okay, moving on to the second fundamental principle. The second fundamental principle is his oneness. That this cause of all being is one. Okay, I'm going to ask an annoying question, and then you can ask your question. Can you please give me a working definition of one? Singular. What? Singular. What do you mean by singular? (laughs) I'm actually getting at something, though. I'm not playing a word game. What? Are you getting that that there's no definition? There is actually. There is actually a definition. Unique? No. Unique. No. I mean, you use the word one all the time and you know what you mean. There's no other. Well, like, you can use it like a number. Like, I have one water bottle, but then there's like, there's only one of it. Either way, what do you mean when you say one? There's no number. There's no other. It's not. It's not other. There's not an other. In other words, there's not two, there's not three, there's not four. That's what you mean. You're negating multiplicity. That's what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And it's important that you think of it this way. When I say um, I have one, what I mean is that I, have, I don't have multiple. There are many notions of multiple, and therefore there are many notions of one, right? But when we're saying one, what we mean is that there could way of thinking of things in multiplicity, of many, and we're negating many. Okay. How many things am I holding in my hand? One. Really? I'm holding a cup and coffee. Ah, right, so, so there's different levels of analysis. On one level of analysis, this is one thing, and another level of analysis, it's two things. It's a cup with coffee in it. But we could actually say, well, really, there's the paper, right? There's the ink, there's the glue, there's the wacky stuff on the inside, right? So the cup itself, I already divided into four things, right? Well, it depends on why we're talking. If you were in cup manufacturing, you would talk that way, wouldn't you? <laughs> well, if you put all the things together, it makes one cup. That's true. And so when I'm, when I'm talking about you know, the object that I'm holding and what I want to drink from, I'll think of it as one thing. And if I'm in cup manufacturing business, I'm going to think of it as many things, right? And if I'm a physicist, well, now we've got protons, neutrons, electrons, quarks, gluons, right? Of course, if I'm an economist, I might not even think of this as an individual thing on its own, right? I might just think of the cup market as a thing. That's one thing, right? Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Like, so when we say one, what we mean is we are, we are categorizing something as not multiple. And there are many legitimate ways of doing that, depending on what you're talking about. Um, only one lives in my home. One what? Family. Family but many. 
right? So if I think of things in terms of families, that's one, right? So some, 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 some municipalities have laws where single family dwelling, what does that mean? How many people can you have living in your home? A lot. A lot, as long as they are considered to be one family. One family. So can you like share, a, so there's, there's actually places like this in the US, like you and your best friend cannot buy a house in the suburbs and live there. But you and your spouse and your five kids can, can, that you can all live there, that's fine. Why? Because you're one in a way that you and your best friend are not one. Okay? So one is always as opposed to many. There's different notions of what we mean by many different contexts. There's different, different notions of what we mean by one. So now it becomes a little bit funny because everything is one in some sense. The very fact that you can think about something and talk about something means you are treating it in some sense as one thing. So it's not really impressive to say that something is one. It's kind of redundant. So then what do we mean when we say God is one? Let's keep reading. There's nothing else like God. Like God is God. No, no, no. But you are close. This oneness cannot be compared to the oneness of a species or a general category that includes many entities, nor is it a oneness that is composite that can be divided on the page into different elements. Neither is a oneness of a single entity that is one in number but can divide and segment and ad infinitum. So he negates three different kinds of oneness. There's a, in other words, there's a oneness of what he calls a species or a category. There's the oneness of an entity which can be divided into different elements and the oneness of an entity that can divide it and segment it. So let's take the last one first. Someone give me a piece of paper they don't want to have, yeah. back, have back. You're going to just like the blank. I can use these? Yeah. Okay. So is this piece of paper God? No. Let us prove it. Since, our, since we are asserting that God is one, this is one piece of paper, so maybe it's God, right? One, one. How do we know this is not God? This is roughly half of the paper, so I can segment it, right? Is this God? Why not? You see what happens? If you can divide it, even just by segmenting it, even though one part is essentially the same as the other part, but it tolerates division in that sense, it is not God. So anything that there can be a half of in any conceptual sense cannot be. God. That's not because that because what we mean just one second. What we mean by one is something that cannot be segmented. What else do we mean? Something that doesn't have different elements and something that doesn't have different individual members, which we'll go to those shortly. Yes. Uh, what about the idea that God is everywhere? Well, that we're going to do when we do principle three. So, you know, part of God really, really loves it when you do a mitzvah, but part of God is just like so disappointed that your mitzvahs aren't done with full passion. Is that true? Why not? Because what is that? That sentence requires God to be two. Because there's one part of God that's like this and one part of God that's like... When we say God is one, we mean is God has no parts. God cannot be divided in any sense of division. Yeah. Um, in this paragraph on the first fundamental principle, mm-hmm. um, 
it's uh, in the Rambam ends uh, in the last sentence. Uh, this one, first fundamental principle is alluded to in the commandment, I am God, your Lord. Yes. Is that, so that sentence, um, does the, is God and your Lord like, equivalent statements, like that they mean the same thing, or is the your Lord expanding on the definition of like, how, what is the relationship of those two parts of the sentence? So, there is a proper name of God, which is known as the Tetragrammaton. It's four letters, we don't pronounce it. And that's what the translator translated as God. Um, that four-letter word is a conjugation of the word in Hebrew for being, um, and it's conjugated in the causative sense. So the, the, so you say haya is was, hove is, yihiya will be. Yehave means will bring things into being or will cause things to be. Mehave is in the present tense, is causing things to be. So the, the four letter name of God is a spelled the same way as the, in, as, as, the, as the word for that which causes things to be indefinitely. Um, and then Elokecha, which means your God, has the notion of authority and power. So when we speak about other, so that so when we speak about other gods, they always use the word Elokim, which means like power and authority. So it's saying the one who brings you into being, I am the one who brings everything into being. I'm the one who causes all things to be, and I am your authority. I am your God. I am your power. The power over you. That's how, that, that's how he gets that out of that verse. And then it's a commandment that we should recognize that as such. Yeah. How can, he said, you know, he can't be happy and sad about the same thing. But how can he be the father, the husband, the... We'll talk about that. Okay. Principle number three. Okay. So now, um, is God just like, is everything God? No. No. Well, think about this. Am I you? No. Are you me? So if we're both somehow parts of God, then God would not be one. one in the sense we're talking about. God would be a one that has different elements or specifically different members, like a group or a category. Okay? Is there anything like God now? Just think about this. Is there anything you can think of that you cannot analyze it differently and see it as multiple in some sense? That's so cool. You mean a quark? <laughs> no, a quark actually you can. Oh yeah, the, the up-down. No, it, it oh, just, no, it just, just, just a, a quark is a collection of different, is a collection of different properties. A quark has a spin, it has a charge, it has a location, it has a velocity. A quark is very, <laughs> every fundamental particle is, is, is a complex entity. This is why physicists are, have a lot of work to do to figure out how that all works. Yeah, there is nothing the human mind can conceptualize that is one in the sense that we mean God is. Which is why the Ramam actually says in other places, the better way of thinking that it's just God is not multiple. That's what we mean. That any notion of multiplicity, a notion of dividing, any notion of deconstructing is by definition going to be wrong when it comes to God. Yeah. Uh, you have a godly soul? Uh-huh. Um. I do. We went to high school together. He wasn't so religious back then. Um, very, very simply, um, it doesn't mean like a piece of God in the sense like this is a, this is a piece of the paper. 
Um, if you look in chapter two of Tanya, where the idea is elaborated on, it has to do with the notion of, of essential identity. I'm not going to go into this at great length. There is something called God's wisdom, which is somehow unified with God. That pull bracket away. And God's wisdom um, is to the soul like a father is to a child. In the sense that, as I mentioned in the other class, that the father is what kind of provides the essential identity and the expectation of what you want to supposed to live up to. So what essentially divines the soul is this thing called God's wisdom, um, Kabbalistically referred to the Father, and which is somehow identified with God. Um, that's, it's not like God actually is like a giant like, piece of pizza and everyone gets a little piece. No. <laughs> it's that there is some you know, mystical, metaphysical entity known as God's wisdom, which can be in some sense identified with God, and that our souls are essential are, are, are essentially the same kind of being like the child is the essentially the same kind of being as the father and therefore it lives is supposed to live up to that essential identity um, if you read chapter um, two of Tanya where he elaborates yeah he says that's what he means I um, mean the Hebrew word chalek can both mean a portion like you cut off but it can also mean you're like your your inheritance your lot in life your your place in society thing that kind of thing so, um, yes, you're not, like, having a little actual, like, chunk of God inside of you, unfortunately. Despite the fact that we might like that to be the case. Yeah? Um, what, what is it meant, like, B'Tselem or Like That will do in, that will do in uh, when we do uh, um, principle number three. Okay. Um, yeah, so basically, if you're thinking about it, it's not God, right? That's what we've concluded. Because everything we can think about, we could think about that same thing slightly differently from a different level of analysis where we can see the one as, in some sense, many. A category has many members. An object has many different elements or aspects to it, right? Even an expanse can be partitioned, right? So if I think of God as like the unifying thing that holds the whole universe together and contains the universe, is that really God? That's right, God doesn't contain anything. Okay. Um, this second fundamental principle is alluded to the verse here, Israel, God is our Lord, God is one. So when we say the Shema prayer, which is not really a prayer, it's really a declaration of faith, what are we declaring? The oneness of God, that God has no parts, aspects, levels, dimensions. Okay. Um, does everybody who has a religion that believes in a perfect being believe that perfect being has no parts? No, definitely not. Definitely not, right. And in fact, and this is how we'll end, many of the Jewish mystics and philosophers and halachists say something to the effect of many Jews declare God's oneness with their mouth, but conceive of him as multiple in their minds. They, they, they declare God's oneness in their mouth, but they conceive of him as multiple in their minds. It's referring to Jews who may be pious and devout, but haven't engaged this aspect of Judaism seriously. If you stop and ask your random Jew on the street and you say, is God one? They say, of course. You say, when we sin, does God still love us? They say, yes. Is God angry with us? Yes. So in one, one sense, God is, loves us. In one sense, God is angry with us. They say, yes. But then so then there are two parts to God. And like, um, yeah. right? And they start hemming and hawing, right? There's something 
right? The conceptualization of God is off. So and what? We'll get to that when we talk about principle number three. <laughs> principle three is a big one. You can tell, yeah. Yes, principle three is a big one, which remember is just God doesn't have a body, right? But apparently that there's a lot in that. Okay. Reading ahead to that, then why do we refer to God as a human? Because if God doesn't have a body, then God's beyond the binary. Um, the simple answer? Um, you were like the most simple, 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 well, simple answer? The simple answer is that Hebrew is a gender language. But like... Well, the, the, the simple answer is that Hebrew is a gender language and male is the default. That's the simplest answer. And that's the correct answer. Now, could I give you then like mystical or philosophical reasons for that? Yes, but, and you know, but, but the core reason is just that's the structure of the Hebrew language. In other words, in other words, the honest truth is if God had created the Hebrew language as such with female gender as the default, then God probably would have been gendered female. Now you could then ask, why did he do it that way? It depends. Well, because well, first off, um, there's a there's a principle in Jewish law which is called batul daitcha, which means when you choose to be weird, or even if you don't choose to be weird, but you just are weird, um, you don't. You're no, I'm serious. This is like very important. It, you are. You don't count. So I'll give you an example. It's like an important thing in Judaism just to know. Um, what's the bracha? We eat fruits, we make blessings. What's the bracha, the blessing that you make on an apple? Ha'etz. Because it's, it's a fruit that comes from a tree. Orange? Ha'etz. Banana? Banana? No, we're not going to do banana. Banana's complicated. We're going to do bananas. Bananas are complicated. Don't, we're not going to do bananas right now. Lemons? Wrong. Shahako. Shahako, which is the blessings that you make on anything that doesn't have a specific blessing. Because normal people do not eat lemons. The ha'etz blessing is only made when it is the fruit of a tree, and that is the primary way society uses, consumes that food. By the way, if you were to cook an orange, by the way, it goes down to, it, 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 it all, becomes it becomes chakal also. Because normal people don't cook oranges and then eat a cooked orange. But apples. Apples are normally, apple. apples go both ways. You can eat oh. them. So this is the thing. My wife loves lemons. She eats them raw. Not too much because it's bad for her teeth. Uh, and as much as I love her, but she, her opinion doesn't count <laughs> in that regard. Um, this is an important, so, so the thing is. When, you're, when, when we're talking about language, since language is by definition a communal endeavor, yeah. so if you, are, if you are breaking the conventions of the communal language, that would be a problem. And this actually is ref- reflected in, 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 in all sorts of halachas. Now, one second, one second. The other thing is if you're making a philosophical point, you have to be clear if that philosophical point is correct. Yeah. Now, I could go into philosophical reasons why we would think of God as more male than female, and there are explanations for that. But I think it's just important to realize that those are secondary to just the basic like structure of the Hebrew language. You could say God made the Hebrew language to reflect that. But then like going off of that with it's like it's just like weird that like different cultures determine different things differently. Yes, and the the honest truth is, and this is where we, if we would go could go into this, is that there is actually a very very strong philosophical reason. Uh, in Judaism, why God is gendered male and not female, generally speaking, with the exception of certain Kabbalistic texts, and why the primary deity in most pagan religions is gendered female. Mm-hmm. That actually has some sort of... Uh, like, Seems like his name is both, is, is plural, like Anachnu, almost, like 
like yeah that's it that's an, that's another thing. one just one thing on the time okay the the reason the reason the reason is like this um in in um there's a few different reasons but the, the simplest reason is that If you think in terms of um, how procreation works, one man can impregnate many women, and the one man who impregnates many women does not actually undergo any real change in the process of procreation. So the actual, if you think about it like that, right, God as kind of the transcendent initial cause of multiple beings Right. That's really why. Now, and this is a key because nature worship or worship of the reality we experience is paganism. And that's why paganism, they speak about things like Mother Earth and the, 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 the divine feminine and things like that. There really is like, like, so the thing is, if you're trying to make that point, you really are cutting against Jewish philosophy. Now, once you go into Kabbalah and you start talking about the spheres and things like that, which we'll talk about next class when we do... Um, principle number three, then, at the, then there is room to speak about God in both masculine and feminine terms. Okay. okay. But if you're just kind of like zooming out, if you're trying to make a philosophical point about the genderedness of things, then, then you really do run into a problem because that's where you move from transcendent creating, create, creationist, monotheist religion versus like nature worship, pagan religion. And you, that's why you see that kind of historical difference and... Um, now, if you're just saying like I'm using the word without it meaning anything one with the other because that's the convention which I speak, as long as everyone else you're speaking to speaks in that convention, like, I don't care. Yeah. Yeah. If there was a language that was standard gendered female, right, and they just referred to God as female in that language, like, there's yeah. not in principle any problem with that. Mm-hmm. Um, Kabbalistically, you would have a problem. And when you're on symbolically, you'd have a problem. But, lingu- okay. but just Hebrew isn't that language. If you're going to talk in Hebrew, yeah. you have to talk the way Hebrew works. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So...